0: Welcome to the Centre for Personalised Medicine podcast where we explore the promises and pitfalls of personalised medicine and ask questions about the ethical and societal challenges it creates. I'm Rachel Horton and I'm here with Gabby Samuel and in today's episode we're talking about the meaning of the patient in genomic medicine. To help us think about this we're joined by Dr Susie Weller Senior Research Fellow at the Clinical Ethics, Law and Society Group at Oxford, and Research Fellow at the Centre for Personalised Medicine, whose research explores the ethical and social challenges that arise for those living and working with genetic and genomic results. Thank you so much for joining us today, Susie. Um, Please could you start by telling us a bit about how you got interested in this question of who's the patient in genomic medicine?
1: Yes, thank you, Rachel. Um, Over the past few years, I've worked on a number of projects focusing on understanding patient experiences. And as a social scientist, I'm particularly interested in the wider impacts of long-term health conditions, how individuals and collectives, including families, navigate and understand the impacts of health interventions, the kinds of resources and support on which they draw, and how caring relationships, identities and practices evolve over time. And as you mentioned at the beginning, my current work explores the ethical and social issues that arise for those living and working with genetic and genomic results.
0: I'm really interested to hear more about this Susie because I guess a lot of your work from what I've read that it's kind of challenging this focus on patients as people on their own in a vacuum making decisions. And could you tell us a little bit more about what you've been looking at recently.
1: Yeah so I think in most areas of medicine it's really common to be focusing on assessing, diagnosing and treating individual patients. Viewing patients as autonomous and independent decision makers stems largely from the ethical principles outlined in the Nuremberg Code which were intended to protect individuals from a repeat of the unethical medical experiments endured during World War II. So this idea of personal autonomy forms a cornerstone of contemporary clinical practice and research in many international contexts. But for me, genomic medicine really highlights the inadequacies of this individualised way of defining a patient. So we know that patients are likely to have family members who may be directly affected by the outcome of tests in others. And professional guidance has increasingly taken a view that genetic information should, at times, be regarded as of relevance to families rather than individuals'. And also clinical genetics professionals often see themselves as family practitioners with a wide range of obligations and responsibilities to different relatives and a long history of talking with and about multiple family members, including across generations.
0: Yeah, I guess in clinical genetics, that's that's sort of the way I had been taught to think about, thinking about all those of genetically related people who might be impacted understanding the family
1: history is important for determining eligibility for testing assessing risk to others and interpreting the results so while a genetic test might provide a diagnosis for some For others, it will predict um, future patienthood with varying degrees of certainty or uncertainty. Rather than just being about the individual index patient, some findings might prove more important, at least temporarily, for the health of a relative of a patient who was originally tested. So this really brings into question who we regard as a patient. It's not just about those who are clinically ill, it's also about those who are at risk or healthy carriers. And as genomic medicine starts to become more a part of mainstream care in the UK, it's all the more important to think about the potential implications for those beyond the index patient. And that's where my interest really lies.
2: So if that's where your interest lies, um, how do you go about researching this area? Like who are the patients that you speak to when you're thinking about these issues in your own research?
1: Oh, that's been interesting. So um, this, uh, the work that I'm drawing on forms part of the Ethical Preparedness in Genomic Medicine Study, or EPIGEM for short. And we've been working with um, index patients and wider family members, and also healthcare wide range of healthcare professionals. So we're really, as part of this work, we're really keen to understand how future patients and healthcare professionals might prepare for the um, ethical and social challenges they may face as genomics becomes part of mainstream care. One of the epigen projects is concerned with documenting the journeys of those affected by the process. So that might include patients, individual index patients, it might include the uh, parents of young patients, also a range of other family members including partners um, and adult children, some of whom may not be biologically related. And we're using a qualitative longitudinal research design which basically means we speak with participants periodically, travelling alongside them to help understand their experience. Um, some of those participants have accessed whole genome sequencing via their involvement in the 100,000 Genomes Project and some through the NHS Genomic Medicine Service.
2: So I'm quite interested in that because I can imagine that there are quite a lot of studies that have looked at patients, not just in genomics, but more broadly. And so if you're starting to think about conceptualising patients within genomics and that kind of individual versus broader conceptualization of the patient... Are there any theoretical models that you can draw on from elsewhere that can inform your research?
1: Yeah, to help of understand the experiences of our participants, we've drawn on a concept of linked lives, which is from um, life course theory, often used by um, sociologists and other social scientists. And this linked lives lens helps us focus on the ways in which the lives of individuals shape and are shaped by those in the the networks in which they're embedded. And it helps us think about the ways in which life courses of um, individuals are intertwined with others, So it's not just about present connections, but it's also about those located in the past. And it's also about future imagining, so for instance, thinking about potential future grandchildren. Um, And this approach also links um, interconnected lives to wider social processes, so events, circumstances and decisions made in one generation shape the lives of future cohorts. So adopting this notion of linked lives as a conceptual tool to explore journeys through genomics has helped us really think about who constitutes the patient, how patients and family members think and talk about what it means to be a patient, and what these understandings might mean for practice, particularly ethical decision-making.
0: That sounds such a fascinating way of looking at things, because I guess it makes so much sense really that we make decisions thinking about the impact on other people and kind of influence by them, but it's just not something that I've often seen brought into lots of, you know, when you think about autonomy and what it means, it's so interesting to kind of bring in those that wider circle of people around the like index patient. What did you find talking to patients?
1: It was very common for our participants to talk about the process as a collective endeavour, this kind of shared journey, albeit experienced from different perspectives. And I guess this is most apparent in the way that parents who've been tested to try and help make sense of a genetic finding in their child discuss their experiences. But we also came across a wide range of other participants talking about this kind of more talking about it in terms of more collective endeavour.
2: Could you give us an example of that, like how they speak in collective endeavours, just so we can get a fle- flavour of what your research is showing?
1: Yeah, of course. Um One example of more collective understanding was um, provided by a couple, William and Maggie. We've spoken to William and Maggie on four occasions so far. Together they have two adult children. And William was diagnosed with a neurological condition about 15 years ago. And it was suspected that his father also had the same condition. So William's genome was sequenced to explore a genetic cause. Um, so far, he's received a letter stating that nothing has been found, so he's living with this probable diagnosis of a rare inherited neurological condition, which could have implications for their adult children and potential future grandchildren. And much of their desire for greater certainty centred around expectations and imaginings regarding their children's futures, and they really hope that um, Williams, the whole genome sequencing might help provide some certainty. So in many respects... William was a patient, and much of discussion focused on him coming to terms with the condition, the onset and progression of symptoms, and his pragmatic approach to adapting to physical changes. So, for Maggie, her own genetic information played no part in the process, and she would not conventionally be recognised as a patient. But how she described their experiences and how she positions herself within the process suggested otherwise. She's very much an inherent part of um, William's journey, not simply in terms of caring for and about him, but also in terms of making sense of their journey through um, genomic testing as a couple. So she went to appointments. She was very proactive in the management of his condition and was very concerned about whether it might um, develop in the children they share. So encounters with healthcare professionals, moral deliberations about the testing of their children and anxieties about potential outcomes were similarly felt and shared by them. And across all of the interviews, it was really interesting because Maggie in particular described the whole process and their experiences in terms of we and us, from being a patient to making challenging decisions and facing outcomes or uncertainties. Their story really resonated with Richard Setterson's work on linked lives and couple formation, where he argues that it's the story of us that counts, and that really reflected William and Maggie's experiences.
2: I find it absolutely fascinating, that idea of collective experiences. I'm thinking like more broadly outside of genetics and genomics. I know it's not your research area, but I can imagine like, for example, cancer patients, like when they visit clinicians with their relatives. And that's like that's quite collective as well. Um, like with relatives using terms like um, we rather than they. And I just wonder if that's something like that you've considered, this idea of collectiveness and whether it should go broader than just genomics.
1: I think so. And I think it will have wider implications as, um, you know, genomics becomes more part of mainstream care and other specialists are um, also have to perhaps think about in these more collective terms. But I do think it certainly would... Um, resonate with other areas of research yeah I do think it's it's an apt way of thinking for other areas of medicine as well actually that um that genomics perhaps provides a really um pertinent pertinent example of it but that is relevant for other areas
0: and it's such a challenge how to sort of incorporate that I guess into clinical practice and that all the computer systems it'll be William's name that goes in the box yeah. or whatever yet it's so evidently happening to Maggie as well in lots of really important senses. Were most examples like that, it was a sort of a, a couple together. Or are there any other kind of ways in which linked lives came to light in your um, conversations?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there's another really interesting example that focuses more on kind of intergenerational patient identities. And one of our participants is a really good example of this. So she was diagnosed with breast cancer in her 40s and she participated in whole whole genome sequencing with her sister and her daughter to look for genetic explanation of their family history of cancer. And like William, she's also received a letter saying that that so far nothing has been found. Um, Past and present experiences of cancer in her family and social networks shaped how Shirley positioned herself and others in terms of patienthood. And in the quest to gain answers, Shirley, like other participants, took a much more intergenerational view, linking her understandings to those of past generations, whilst also using her own experiences to reinterpret and question the past. So Shirley had lost multiple family members in quick succession. Um, And it was this, along with her hopes and expectations for the future health of her relatives, that were really motivating factors in her drive to support genomic research, so to to participate in whole genome secrecy, but also to be part of our study. And for Shirley, cancer was shrouded in secrecy in the previous generation by her sister. So, for example, her sister had told she was terminally ill, but had told all the other family members that she was okay when she wasn't. And in response, Shirley strongly advocated much more openness, and this featured in her drive to pursue genomic testing and in her quest to ensure that her grandchildren, including those in their teens, understood the risks and were vigilant regarding potential symptoms. As Shirley was all too aware, um, ensuring timely dissemination of such information could be key to an individual accessing testing and a prompt diagnosis and treatment. But there was also a moral imperative, being open about her own vulnerabilities and the potential heritable risk to others was the right thing to do for the health of future generations. So this was very much presented by Shirley as this like joint familial project, part of this kind of broader fight against cancer. And viewing Shirley's narratives through a linked lens really helped us think about the inter- inter, and intergenerational connectivity between patients' identities. So her understanding of this clear family history meant that she regarded all family members and future generations as potential patients.
2: I think that's really fascinating. Like if we go along with this, um, which I think is such an important way of conceiving how people make decisions about genomics testing, like how do you then... your findings can help genomic medicine like as it becomes more embedded into the health system and within the structure of i mean rachel was saying earlier right a very individualized care
1: i think as it becomes further embedded more people need to be prepared for to face this a range of ethical moral deliberations with and or about the linked lives of those within their networks The prospect of receiving certain or uncertain findings and living with a result or results or uncertainties will become more commonplace. So I think it's really important to think about and prepare for the duties that healthcare professionals may have to those beyond the individual index patient. So this might involve obtaining, recording, storing, sharing and reusing data from multiple family members as well as others embedded in the journey but not necessarily directly involved in testing. Um, I think It raises important questions about what guidance and and support ought to be given regarding how, when and to whom heritable risks and potential findings are disseminated. And discussions with healthcare professionals space, I think, needs to be made to incorporate the wider impact on participants' lives. And I think, um, as I mentioned earlier, that mainstreaming will mean that such challenges will be encountered beyond genomic medicine. For some healthcare professionals whose specialism lies outside uh, clinical genetics, more nuanced views of both patienthood and family are likely to be necessary.
2: Did you get a sense when you were talking to your patients that the sharing of information amongst relatives happens already? It's just because um, I've done quite a lot of research around thinking and talking to patients and that sometimes this assumption that it's already happening within the NHS and I was just wondering if you came across that at all.
1: From the perspective of the participants that we've spoken to so far, It's much more about them being proactive themselves in terms of sharing it quite widely, actually, with um, and being very proactive in tracking down people. So we have several examples of participants who have traced relatives with whom they have very little, very little or no contact, estranged relatives overseas, um, with this with this possibility that there there may be some implications for them, and also others who've traced family through websites such as ancestry to try and track down as many people as possible so being incredibly proactive about it and i think there's lots of issues there actually in terms of what you're what you're actually how, how much you know as a, the two examples i've given here I actually know v- very little at the moment they don't and nothing has been found yet but there's still Sharing the possibility, there's something. There might be implications for other family members, quite distant family members as well. But I think the 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 interesting thing that's come from this work so far is this the involvement of non biological relatives and the implications for them and how this story of us um, involves more people in the network. So it was more than just about shared decision making. It was about participants feeling an inherent part of the journey and experiencing it alongside and with others.
2: I imagine that also raises connotations in terms of support, right? Because if we view, if we view non-genetically related individuals coming along the journey with them, then I suppose emotional support issues come along with that, right? Um, and then from there, questions of where that support comes from. Have you thought about how that links in as well?
1: Absolutely. And um, we haven't um, finished all the analysis for this project yet, but I think some of the sort of preliminary findings coming for that suggests a lack of support in that area and um, participants feeling
0: quite unsupported and t- emotionally. Well, thank you Susie, that has given us so much to think about and it's been really, really great to hear more about your work. Um, could I ask the question we ask everyone, if you had to pick one message for people to take away from this podcast, what would it be? I think that people are
1: situated in networks of relationships and one person's decision will have consequences for others. And often these consequences for others are a key influence on the decisions that they might make.
0: And, and how could we find out more about your work? Um, we've published a paper
1: on this aspect of our work in the journal Social Science and Medicine. Um, the paper's called Reimagining the Patient and it features in volume 297. And I also
0: tweet project updates at Dr. Susie Weller one Thanks Susie, it was such a, a brilliant paper and so kind of you to take the time to talk to us about it. Um, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Centre for Personalised Medicine podcast. If you'd like to find out more about personalised medicine and its promises and challenges, please visit the Centre for Personalised Medicine website at cpm.well.ox.ac.uk.